Welcome to Historias, the Spanish history podcast. I'm your host, Foster Chamberlain. Before we begin this month's episode, I wanted to announce that while up to now, all recording for this podcast has been done in person in order to show the best audio quality and fluidity of the conversations, due to current travel limitations, we're starting to do remote recording as well, which allow us to bring in an even broader variety of guests than was before possible. I hope you enjoy the new format. Today, I'm joined by Anna Catherine Kendrick, a clinical assistant professor of literature at New York University, Shanghai, to discuss the idea of the child in Spain, as presented in her new book, Humanizing Childhood in Early 20th Century Spain, out last year from the Modern Humanities Research Association. So Anna, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. It's great to be with you. So I wanted to start out by asking you very simply, what was the state of Spanish education at the end of the 19th century? Well, by the early 20th century, let's say, um, so by the end of the, the 19th, Spain did have one of the lowest rates of school attendance, um, highest rates of literacy in Europe. And this was a very much discussed question alongside um, all the questions of 1898, um, national regenerationism, this idea that um, education was at the core and at the base of what needed to happen um, by um, with intellectuals, scientists, teachers, uh, and others. Uh, and so this question is perhaps also best uh, answered, at least from my perspective as, uh, as a literary scholar, really, um, by the initiatives and people that were springing up to respond to these questions. Um, you have Pio Baroja, El Arbol de la Ciencia, um, which is published in 1911, but depicting the period of the late 18, uh, of the 1890s. Uh, Unamuno's writing texts on higher education in Spain in 1899, De la Enseñanza Superior in España. Um, and there's just this general sense of frustration coming through in these texts of stagnation, um, of kind of circularity of discussion. Um, so this problem of larger intellectual culture that so many are pointing towards, but it also comes through as a very practical question of one of primary education, of, of lack of resources, um, exposure, engagement of teachers to other countries, other contexts. So, so there is um, work happening and there are, there are laws being passed, the Le Moyano uh, in 1857, which starts to establish the first formal regulation of um, national education. But again, none of this is, is the solution uh, yet through that period. So I'm really looking at the early 20th century past where, where these efforts are beginning to coalesce um, and come towards some sort of energy and, and active uh, engagement. My understanding is that education was also very dominated by the Catholic Church at this time. So how did these reformers relate to the relationship between the church and education? What did they think that uh, Spain should do about that if, if it's trying for this regeneration? Mm, yeah, no, it's a, it's a very good question because the, the role of the church is so dominant in a way as to be able to, in, disin, not very difficult to disentangle the, the two um, because, um, well, I guess we can get here towards the, um, the start of the Institución Libre de Enseñanza in 1876, um, started by uh, three professors who 
uh, declined to sign an oath of, of dogmatism and rather started its institution, which was um, pointedly secu secular uh, and independent, so a non-governmental organization as well. And this is what will give rise um, to, uh, to residency de estudiantes, to schools, to other efforts through the 20th century. Um, so this initial focus is on defending and creating an open space within the realm of higher education, where, um, so if you think about, again, the Pio Baroja context, these kind of complaints about the this, this stagnation of the university system or of intellectual culture mm -hmm. and research um, to create an open space that can do that without the restraints and strictures of the church, um, but quickly begins to return towards smaller scale educational efforts um, for uh, secondary and primary schools, summer camps, colonias escolares, uh, going out to the sea, to the mountains. Um, and this is happening through the late 19th century, but we, where we see it um, and where I focus on it is in the early 20th, um, particularly in the, towards the 20s and 30s as we get towards the Republic and these movements become formalized more um, and taken on in a more mainstream sense as well with government funding, but with um, educationalists and pedagogues who have been trained abroad and who are making this a part of that national effort um, rather than just being a um, private, uh, small peripheral movement. And so some of those, I guess, countervailing questions that they want to get towards are, um, if you think about the church teachings, um, well, I, I look at questions of, and we'll talk about this, I think later, sort of holism of mind, body, spirit, and how those qualities knit together. And that is very much a Catholic uh, framing. And I use it in my work very purposefully uh, to think about what do those, what do those criteria mean when you think about the, the, the developing young, the human, the, the child, um, and what does it mean also in a humanist secular sense to, to look to those qualities and to what degree can these very uh, potentially ideologically very differently aligned movements um, be focused on similar things, of course, with different ultimate foundations, um, but also the fact that the progressive education movement was not necessarily count, always counter to Catholic teaching or to, to the church. Um, yes, there was a desire for, uh, for secular education, and that becomes uh, across the board the, the, the law of the land under the Second Republic, but but I would contend and argue, and others have as well, that Catholic educators were at least a subset, um, at least prominent uh, educators and priests and others were actually looking at what is happening um, abroad, what is happening in psychopedagogy, how we, what we know about how the child learns and develops. Um, so there are efforts happening on both sides, and, and these are not, um, these do not necessarily have to be uh, completely um, countered movements, although, of course, in practice, um, they would largely become that because of the institutions and figures uh, leading them. That's interesting to keep in mind that we don't always have to draw such a straight line between the Catholic and secular educational movements because it's so easy to do that. But I'm also glad you, you brought up the idea of holism because that's so important in your book. And that was my next question. So um, maybe you could tell us a little more about what that idea of holism even means and kind of the theoretical background of it. And also 
how it was used by these educational reformers in Spain. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's an interesting term that I came to actually as a way of putting a, a, a broader terminology to some of the scientific and psychological movements I was interested in, um, Gestalt psychology coming from Germany and, and others. Um, but what I came to realize was actually, no, this is really about humanism. This is about um, that, that kind of Catholic societal base. Um, so it has, in that way, it's functions very uh, neatly and nicely for me as a way to play with um, what is happening and what is being sought uh, in terms of wholeness in society and the individual in systems against also questions of, let's say, fragmentation or divisiveness. Um, so this idea of holistic education in Spain, I think the foundational idea that one comes to is Krausism, Krausist education. Um, so this was uh, a philosophy um, and a philosophy of education as it came to be applied that was imported from Germany, um, 1840s, 50s, so quite early, but then really brought out as uh, part of the guiding spirit of the Institución Libre de Enseñanza in its outreach and educational efforts. And it was really in Spain and then, and also in Latin America and so Hispanic contexts that uh, Krauszismo actually becomes, uh, becomes a thing, <laughs> becomes an important influential movement. Um, uh, I think the, so the first major study of it, uh, the kind of classic study is um, 1956 and post-war um, Lopez Morillas. And then more recently, um, scholars like um, Michael Sonnenscher have been looking at it as a way of thinking about uh, not just uh, what's happening in Spanish education uh, in the way that, that I might uh, and others before me have framed it and read it, but also as a kind of global intellectual movement that is connected to other frameworks. So, so what, does it, um, what does it mean? What does it imply in practice? Um, well, the way that you see holistic, uh, again, to, to take this term at face value, I guess, to just simply apply it in a practical way, um, where you see, what you see in the threads of education that I track um, are questions of mutual respect, the relationship between the child and the teacher, exploration, a movement towards the outdoors, to learning by doing, project method is something that comes in uh, at some point as a methodology from pedagogues abroad, this way of um, what you do on the paper or in the classroom reflecting the experience and the lived experience that happens outside of it, um, to look towards creativity of the arts, literature, culture, um, and that um, broader sense of the exercise of the imagination. So scientific research happens in a way, let's say through collecting, um, collecting leaves or flowers um, outside and imprinting them in a book. Learning to read might happen not through learning the ABCs one after the other, but through hearing poems, um, singing songs, and that's this sort of organic movement, both uh, not always taking things as one step after the next, but thinking of it as an experience that is had and that that is how learning happens. So that's the kind of holism, I guess, that I see and apply in education. Yeah. I also was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about why this idea of the child appealed so much to these um, Spanish reformers and artists in the period. 
And I want to ask you to talk a little about one figure in particular, the philosopher um, Miguel de Unamuno, and what his vision was for educational reform and how he tried to um, use that idea of the child to convey it. Yeah, so Unamuno is, is always there in some sense when you look at education in Spain, um, when you look at the Residencia de Estudiantes, uh, the Institucionalistas, those who are of the Institución Libre de Enseñanza, uh, in a biographical sense, he was not always physically present. He had these famous periods of exile, of course, but, um, but his spirit is sort of infusing that work they do and they are in constant contact, I think. Um, so, you know, he's writing from the 1890s about higher education and in um, 1902 publishes a work called Amori Pedagogia, which is uh, essentially a satire of, or a critique um, in novelistic form, the nivola form that he creates of um, overly scientific, positivistic pedagogy. Uh, so I could think of like various pedagogues that he would even be lampooning at the time who write these very detailed treatises on how, you know, how this works and maybe not with pedagogy, but many, many different fields and that the fact that you cannot apply these uh, techniques, these approaches to something which is a human endeavor, even as all of these uh, figures are supporting, of course, research and understanding on um, what is education and what is learning and what is childhood. Um, so there's a particularly affecting article, I think, from the early 1930s that shows him sitting at the residencia. I think it's actually in the residencia's own magazine. Um, he's sort of a, sitting there as an elder statesman of sorts and folding paper birds, origami, for visitors from abroad or for the students that are sitting there with him. Um, and so this was actually one of his great loves, this paper folding activity. And he made hundreds of tiny birds, tiny animals over the course of his lifetime, even little priests, all kinds of figures. Um, and so as I actually argue in one chapter of my book, this creation and care of what he called his cocots, um, these small birds was critically linked to the way that he critiques pedagogy, uh, to the elevation of a humanist human alternative, the physical folding of these little creatures which are geometrical, right? These are not living. These are something which can be made, can be reduced, can be essentialized, and yet have this kind of spirit. Um, and so the, the book itself, again, satire is this father who uh, tries to marry eugenically, produce an heir, raise the child according to scientific precepts, yet completely loses sight of the spiritual philosophical dimensions of that upbringing um, and of the child as an autonomous person of the grown human. Um, and so you see these competing philosophical spiritual influences coming through. So this work is actually bookended by various fictional scientific philosophical treatises by one character that's meant to weave through on the origin, the genesis of these paper birds, which is in some way counterposed to the upbringing of, of Apollodoro, the protagonist, um, and they're raised in a sense to this somewhat humanist spiritual status. So it's a really interesting work. And Unamuno, in, in that, in that he, he reissues it in 1932 with new content um, or new kind of framings. Um, so that I think is a, is, is a really interesting work to explore both in terms of its um, 
its content and its message, but also what he's doing behind the scenes, so to speak, um, or at the forefront of you know, speaking at international conferences that are happening in Spain um, and looking to mentoring uh, a next generation of educators in, in a certain sense. And I, I like the image of him making these little paper figures, even as he's giving these philosophical uh, speeches and so forth. But I think what's interesting about him is that he really emphasizes this spiritual aspect of mm -hmm. education. But it seemed to me, reading your book, that at the same time, there was a lot of emphasis on a scientific approach to education. So I want to ask you to tell us a little a bit about those um, perceived scientific influences on how education should be reformed as well. Yeah, well, I think that was one of my guiding questions, at least at the very beginning, um, because you do see these, what feel like very different cha channels or, or streams of work and thinking. You get these extremely sort of technicized, um, medicalized works. Um, so an entire field of study um, known as pedologia, um, pedology, the study of the child, where thing, where the growth of, of an infant, of a child, is being broken down into, uh, into periods. It's, it's looked at as, you, know, you can study the child just like any living being. I mean, that becomes uh, channels into pediatrics, which makes sense, of course, mm -hmm. um, and de developmental child psychology. So um, it's not off base. And I, and I make the case that there are voices within this movement that are actually very invested in a more phenomenological view of the child, of this existential, these existential questions. Like if you are thinking about what is early perception look like in an infant, we have no access to that. You can only go by these external clues. Uh, so, you know, images like um, thinking of like a, a tourist coming out of the metro station at Puerto del Sol, um, having no, who's never been in a city. Um, this is this uh, infant, right, who encounters the world, these um, masses of, of unfamiliar people, light, color, noise, uh, so ideas of sensation. And there's a lot of imagining that happens as to what that process looks like, uh, which I found really fascinating. So when you put that alongside other movements that are happening at the time, um, you have um, from, coming from France, Bergsonian vitalism, creative, creative evolution. In Germany, what I was particularly, am particularly interested in, um, Gestalt psychology, this idea that the whole is, um, we often say greater, but other than the sum of the parts, that um, vision, sound, perception are all influenced by the way in which you view something. Um, and you connect, the mind naturally connects isolated elements to create a larger whole. So the child is um, in essence doing that as they begin to process information. So many pedagogical techniques under this influence get sort of stepped back. So like what I said about the ABCs, rather than learn those individually, they have no inherent meaning by themselves, right? And A, um, instead there's um, a term is applied global, globalization, um, globalization of the mind, that that is something which um, you only really understand the meaning by looking at the whole and the context. Um, and of course, we might also think of Ortega, 
um, just so enjoying this like, circumstancia of these questions of perspectivismo, that um, context is key to understanding what is, what actually is. So these are again, very like, philosophical questions that go beyond just doing a test and coming out with a, an answer. So that's what really fascinated me is that even the most, um, the, the figures who are holding the chairs in pedagogy, newly created in the early uh, 20th century um, at, at new teacher training institutes, the Escuela Superior de Magisterio in Madrid, um, figures like Domingo Barnes, a government minister later, um, are, their works are both very scientific, but also very um, open-ended in the questions that they pose and what they both feel that they can know and can and should learn about the child, but also what is unknowable, what is foreign, um, that the world of the child is somehow qualitatively different um, than that of the adult and in essence, a different world. So that's, that, um, that's what I found so fascinating about the, the two elements and how do those come together. Uh, we're going to take a short music break and then when we return, we'll look at some avant-garde artists who were also interested in the idea of the child and we'll be analyzing a few poems in particular. So in the second half, we want to turn to the relationship between avant-garde artists in Spain um, to this idea of the child in the early modern period. And Spain was really one of the centers of this avant-garde modernism at that time. And I understand that Spanish artists of all stripes um, in the period were taken by this idea of the child. So why were they so interested in children? Yeah, well, it's um, something that I think if we step back and you see in, let's take the most famous example of, of Spanish art at the time, although happening in France, Picasso, um, this view of um, go, stripping back even to children's drawings to that which is most essential, fresh, um, unfiltered in the view of the world. Um, and that really fit into uh, the aesthetic that these artists were looking to put forward. Um, so on the pedagogical frame, again, this is this interest in the child is happening internationally. Um, a Swedish writer, Ellen Key, called said that this is going to be the century of the child. And so there are reforms and ideas and discussions happening in all kinds of areas of um, school book design. Um, you know, children's literature becomes a genre for the first time, in a sense, um, very uh, and, and pioneered by many avant-garde uh, illustrators and artists. So this entire aesthetic of 
uh, like you know blocks and colors and uh, think about playgrounds and this um, moving out towards uh, connecting that avant-garde impulse to what can actually happen in the realm of childhood. Um, so that's the international uh, story uh, that artists are connecting into. Um, but then there's also something uniquely happening uniquely in Spain, looking to the 1920s, 1930s, um, both under Primo de Rivera uh, regime as well as under the Second Republic, this sense of uh, first sense of change, revival, internationalism, efforts to make concrete change. So when you talk about um, education, education reform, um, that takes on again an, a particular charge. Um, and if you talk about the figure of the child, so if we move from education to actually the child itself and why these artists would have an interest in, in the figure of the child and in the living, breathing child, um, that children that they were meeting, encountering, um, you move to something that is, in my view, less national in its symbolism um, and more humanist and aesthetic in its um, efforts and its reach. Um, in its grounding. So, uh, for example, 1928, uh, the Manifesto Amarillo, the Yellow Manifesto, was published. Um, Salvador Dali and colleagues collaborated on this, and Lorca published it in his journal Gallo um, in Granada shortly after, um, setting out an aesthetics of the new art that they wished to see. Uh, so, terms and qualities to do with the new. Um, vividness, movement, speed. So the reconfiguration of childhood that I laid out in terms of books and um, aesthetics and toys and school setup, um, all of that is also happening within the frame of what they wish to see in, um, in their own art. So that interest in children's drawings, um, in unfettered imagination, seeing the world literally rather than intellectually, that um, a more straightforward view of this is what the child's eyes see without the interference of learning, schooling, uh, what they're told it should be. Uh, seeing it like a cubist, actually, as an early 20th century psychiatrist claimed. Um, and then at the same time, when we think about their influences, this is the same time that um, Proust is remembered of things past as being translated by Pedro Salinas in Spain in the early 1920s. Um, Freud, his works are, Ortega is bringing them in through the Revista de Occidente, also in the early 1920s. So the valoration of memory, the sense of childhood as the base, the core of the self, uh, takes on a really important sense, um, both for society, but also, as I'm arguing, within art and culture itself. Today, I wanted to focus on the inspiration that artists drew uh, from children in the medium of poetry. And I thought uh, we could start by looking at uh, Federica Garcia Lorca, who's maybe the most famous poet of this uh, generation of, of 27 that was part of this broader movement. And according to your book, he actually wrote poetry for children. Uh, mm -hmm. So could you tell us why he did this and give us an example as well? He's, he writes a series of poems for children, um, known as canciones or canciones infantiles, uh, which are collected um, or written from 1921 to 24. And a lot of that is 
um, directly having you know, with and for his his little sister, um, for her friends. So it's a playful, real form of interaction. Um, and often they are dedicated to children, to, um, for instance, uh, Claudio or Teresa Guillen, the children of the poet Jorge Guillen, um, is one that comes to, there's various that come to mind um, with those dedications and children of other poets of, of again, this, this immediate group. So that is important that individual actually um, lived experience of how they arise. But also he takes on a much larger interest in what an poetic aesthetics of childhood can look like through the lens of something called bananas or las nanas, um, childhood lullabies. He gives a lecture on um, las nanas infantiles, um, what they are, what they mean for Spain. And it's, it's a really fascinating uh, glimpse through, the, through this view of childhood and childhood art and aesthetics into what kind of project he may also have when you look at um, Spain and Spanish art and culture. So he talks about um, creating a melodic map of Spain through the different kinds of lullabies that are sung in different regions. Um, this sense of duende, of melancholy, or something uniquely Spanish um, in his mind, where you know there's no other place where the nannies, the mothers are, he says, kind of imbuing their babies, their children with such melancholy, such uh, a perhaps dark or um, ambivalent view of the world, but also one with, with kind of hope and, um, um, and beauty. So it's a really fascinating encapsulation, I think, of some of the ways that he approaches his poetry as a whole. Um, so I'd be happy to read um, one or two very small. They're all very short. There's one that evokes this, a kind of mother and child set out against the world. Um, a la nana, niño mío, a la nanita, y haremos en el campo una chocita, y en ella nos meteremos. With this lullaby, we'll, we'll build a little hut and hide ourselves away. Sort of senses of poetic transportation. Um, and he's fascinated by what is happening in those very small transporting poems that color and filter into the mind in its earliest days before anything else. Now, I want to take a look at a couple of other examples that might be along somewhat uh, similar lines. First of all, I understand you have a poem from another write, a writer of this period, Jorge Julien, mm -hmm. and he has the, this poem, Playa Niños, which is about children on the beach. We have a couple mm -hmm. of examples uh, yeah. of this. So could you tell us a little about this poem and read mm -hmm. that one for us as well? Yeah, this one I focused on be actually because, not, not, only, not only because I'd read it and found it uh, quite affecting, but it, because it was excerpted and published in an anthology for children in 1934, along with many other avant-garde poets, along with um, classic and sort of folkloric works as well, poets like Guillen, Salinas, Alberti, Lorca, Jimenez, they are all showing up in what to the children of, in this case, the Republic, uh, the Second Republic, um, what kind of um, images, lyric exposure they can be, can be getting. So I thought that was a, all in and of itself a really interesting view into the project as a whole, let's say, um, but as a poem as well within the context of his um, Cantico, 
uh, Canticle, his 1928 um, sort of view of life and experience through so many lenses, light, air, breath, um, but also childhood. And I think that's a, a lens and an angle that has been relatively underexplored in that work. So, uh, so I'll read this poem, Playa Niños. Este sol de la arena guía manos de niños, las manos que a las conchas salven de los peligros. Conchas bajo la arena tienden hacia los niños, niños que ya hacia el sol. Pero el sol rectilíneo viene, los rayos, vastos arriba, tan continuos de masa, deslidándose, llegan, aunque sus visos, sin cesar, rebofando de hincos en hincos de ondas, se despanden. Aquí, por fin tendidos, se rinden a las manos más pequeñas. O vínculos rubios y conchas, conchas, acorde, cierre, círculo. So we have this uh, sun um, and sand, right? And these are somehow guiding the movements of the child's hand. Um, you can think of images of children playing on the beach, building sand castles, running into the sea, gathering seashells, and these children are somehow impelled also towards, towards the sun. Uh, we can think about the paintings that uh, uh, Joaquin Sorolla did, hundreds of paintings of children on the beach, many of which are in the Prado and other museums, on the cover of my, my book as well, because I feel like this connection is so strong uh, to light, to movement, to sun. But in this poem, you also get this, um, this sun ceaselessly, pouring down upon them and, and think about heat. And uh, this is a very, can also be a very threatening image. Um, los rayos vastos arriba, tan continuos, these un, um, beating down rays uh, without ceasing of these waves. In other poems, he talk about waves with a kind of brut brutality of salt and the, the beating pressure. And there is that also threat of diving into a wave, like it's it's dangerous and it's scary as well. But but here he kind of comes to this this sense of praise at the same time through this um, that all of these things give themselves over to the hands, to these small, tiny hands, these children's hands, and kind of almost asks for uh, protection in a way of children. Accorde siere circulo to kind of um, bring it, there's a roundness, a continuity, perhaps holism, if you want to use that term, to what is there and to what he's seeing um, in the child and the integrity of the body of the child, but also to the scene um, and kind of asking for almost a space of, of enclosure from that mm. world, which is, um, which is threatening, which is vast, which is discontinuous. Um, so uh, various poems by Guillen, uh, as well as others, I think, evoke that mixture of praise of beauty, but also something which is much more complex. We have one more poem here for you. And this one is by a woman author, Josefina de la Torre. So before sharing this one with us, could you tell us a little about the importance of female authors in this movement where so many of the famous names that people know are men? Yeah, this is a really important point and one that I think I as a scholar became increasingly, wanted increasingly to emphasize because they are underread and underrepresented and therefore in my early readings, it took me much longer to come to these actually. And 
Um, and so for that reason, I think it's really important to, to be looking at what figures like Carmen Conde, um, a poet writes various works, looking at her work as a teacher, um, her own memories of childhood. Um, and she's a major figure in 20th century Spanish literature in the Francoist and post, post-war and 20th century context. Uh, Moruja Mayo, an artist um, well known for her, for her works um, in the 1930s and after, but also an investment concretely in, child, in children. She goes at, works as a teacher for um, at least a year and circulates and publishes children's drawings. So um, the, the Chilean poet Gabriela Mistral as well, who spends some time in Spain or is, and or is in very close contact uh, with figures like Carmen Conde, Nora Borges, um, also um, of Argentina. And so they're having their own discussion as well. And interestingly, definitely sharing this aesthetic investment in the vivacity of childhood and what it embodies and what it what they wish to create, to bring into the world. Um, and I've also seen some ways in which they perhaps draw distinctions between their standpoint as women, their ability to understand and engage with childhood in a particular way, um, a kind of internal perhaps lens that perhaps men do not have access to in the same way, um, which is an interesting question that I think I touch on um, and would like to explore further mm -hmm. because um, in another sense, I actually found it very important to focus on these very well-known male figures who are interested in childhood because that in itself is fascinating uh, because it's not relegated to the realm of women. It's not simply a maternal impulse. It's not sentimental. It's a very serious project. Um, so those two tendencies are, I think, equally important. Um, and so Josefina de la Torre is again a very fascinating figure. She's one of the few, um, perhaps the only poet included in, in surveys of Spanish poetry in the early 1930s by uh, Gerardo Diego, I believe is the editor. Of, so her poetic contributions were at the time acknowledged, but at the same time rather under, perhaps underappreciated and were largely forgotten over the course of these decades. Um, she's been partly rediscovered, I would say, in recent years through um, through young scholars and also through um, this idea of Sin Sombreros, the women of the Spanish avant-garde. There's a new documentary on that in which she's featured. So that's um, really exciting and important work. Um, and, and so this poem actually is included in the same anthology for children that the poem I just read by Jorge Guillén, uh, from which that is drawn. And uh, I found it a particularly affecting view um, on children and on the scenes of childhood. Um, she writes, Llueve el sol sobre la arena mojada, y en la orilla hay muchas piedrecitas menudas brillantes. En el horizonte corta el mar una cinta de roca jugosa de agua. Pasan las barcas que vienen de pesca, y al pasar dejan un brillo de plata nervioso de los peces que traen el, en el fondo. Hay muchas velas blancas junto al cielo más allá, donde miran los ojos y en las olas pequeñas que van a la playa, unos niños desnudos jugando con la espuma blanca, la isla junto al mar descalza. So one thing that I drew from this um, was first of all, the, the language has a very childlike feel to it, um, these short 
sentences, a focus on images, color, um, how they interact and are next to one another, often the humanizing of individual uh, elements of a scene, whether it's the sun or a boat. Um, and these are things that I've seen in, it's very circular. Um, they are bringing out children's poetry, right? What, what kind of poetry does a child produce? Um, and that gets published, but at the same time, poets are publishing poetry uh, for a wider audience um, as poetry that has these elements, these aesthetic elements that come, let's say, from children. So it's hard to know where it arises, where, from where it, from whence it originates, but it's, uh, it's a kind of common interest and aesthetic. Uh, so uh, at the same time, you get these, this kind of mise-en-scene, this um, landscape in which children are centered, um, but they are also um, the viewer, um, whether de la Torre or whoever is you know, the, the protagonist, the viewer of this poem is rather set apart, um, is viewing and is an adult observer. But like I said about this idea of childhood as a world apart, um, they are in some ways a passive recorder of what they're seeing, something happening beyond the frame, um, an experience to which they have no access. So giving these bodies playing in, in the sand, in the, the waves, um, some autonomy, actually. You know, it's not just that they are elements of the landscape, um, although they become that, but that they are vivid actors beyond her reach and acting within this wider frame. Just to kind of wrap up all these different elements that we've been talking about today, and we've looked at so many different poets and other thinkers, I want to speak a little about the legacy of all these different thinkers who were dealing with this question of children and educational reform um, in the early 20th century, because we've mentioned the Second Republic quite a bit, 1931 to 1936, how that was a time where a lot of these reforms, um, the government really tried to put them into practice in a kind of budding democratic regime. But after the Civil War, of course, the Franco dictatorship put a stop to most avant-garde art uh, and this experimental secularizing education. So do you think this interest in education and the child in the early 20th century had an impact uh, even during those Franco years uh, and beyond when, when you, you saw such a decline in um, this kind of ferment uh, that was going on prior to that. Yeah, well, I mean, I'll answer this in, in a sense in three frames, and only the third is really, I think, what you're asking. But um, if you look from 1936, during wartime, um, you have uh, many of these methods being applied in the treatment and work with children, um, under wartime conditions. So colonias escolares where um, play and outdoor um, work and particularly childhood art and drawings become very central. And that happens, of course, in a developmental sense. It's uh, psychologists like Regina Lago um, and her husband Juan Comas who are leading this effort of childhood art, child drawings, um, and these get exhibited abroad. Um, Aldous Huxley later writes work about these. So it's, so it's, of course, both psychopedagogical, but also political, and they're being exhibited, and it's creating a sense of 
um, empathy, support for the Republic. Um, so that's the wartime framework in which these methods continue to be very important to the work that they do with children. Um, there's the framework of exile because uh, so many of the figures that I study do leave Spain. Um, of course, within the larger teacher core, many teachers are killed um, or imprisoned after the war. Um, but I do track various pedagogues who immigrate and where they bring that humanist psychopedagogical focus and also a sort of existential view of childhood learning, creativity to currents and channels of thought in Latin America. So again, because this is an international movement, it's not that they import this um, or export this afresh from Spain. They're joining up with a larger discussion that's already happening. Um, but you get leading figures in Spain who then become leading figures in their countries of reception, like the psychologist Mireille Lopez, uh, like uh, Joaquin Girao, who goes to Mexico City, whose son Ramon uh, becomes a very well-known poet in Mexico. And he himself had been had gone through Montessori schools in Barcelona um, during the pre-war period. Um, so, you know, Argentina, Colombia, Venezuela, Uruguay, can think of figures who continued that work in similar veins after the war. But what you are really asking, of course, is uh, through the Francoist period, what can we say about what happens? Um, so I've touched on the elements of rupture and the elements of continuity that happen by those I'm interested in. I had also said earlier in this interview that there was interest by Catholic pedagogues in some of these psychopedagogical frames and um, ideas. So it's, um, I don't want to go too far and to say that they continued that work and that, uh, that somehow there was um, a continuation of ideas that I'm tracking like holism because that would be saying far too much um, if you're looking at the na national catholic ideological framework of uh, franco spain um, that is clearly not the case there is a shift clear shift away from the more experimental child-centered methods um, the teacher takes on the authority that is you know under and aligned along with parents um, franco god uh, and so that is clearly laid out, you know, both in textbooks and in manuals of pedagogy. Um, but what is interesting um, is that also in recent years, historians of education have been recovering some of the ways in which pedagogues were still interested and engaging with um, the ideas that they had encountered in the pre-war period. So sometimes these are uh, come into pedagogical manuals, but they are uh, disavowed. They, they say, well, um, this, is a, this is the idea that is correct. However, the context in which Decroly or Claparet or um, this, you know, Swiss or whatever psychologist was working were wrong. But they keep the ideas. So the idea, for instance, global, globalization of the mind, that stays in the, the manuals with its entire context and framework and, and the idea of how the Spanish child thinks um, and how the Spanish child views the world again. So you get into questions also, if we move from holism, what do you get towards sort of totality, totalitarianism, really interesting ideas to play with, I think in the terminologies. Um, and this happens as well in German studies. If you look from the um, holism of the early 20th century through to um, Nazi Germany, you know, many of the movements are completely different, but they become in some way, they all feed into 
they're all coming out of certain impulses and feeding um, in, in different ways. So um, what I think is really interesting is not that the manuals include these, this, this information because they can't really escape it. Um, it is, you know, the field of, of developmental psychology is proceeding apace no matter what, and they can't ignore what came before. The question is what goes into practice. There you see some interesting movements, but they are very, very isolated. So I look briefly in uh, my epilogue at work like the Colegio Estudio, which was a school started in the early 1940s in Madrid on the base of recovering the work of the ILE, the Institución Libre de Enseñanza, um, by figures who had been involved in it before. So they learned to bring out the practice in a way that is going to be framed um, as you know, not um, threatening or disloyal to the larger regime, um, as well as, and including religious instruction, of course, um, and the Colegio Estilo, which is started by a pedagogue and well-known author, Josefina Aldecoa, in the late 1950s. And that was on the basis, again, of recovering these ideas and focusing on creative pedagogy, art, culture, literature. So uh, it would be wrong to take those two examples and say, you know, therefore, um, these ideas survive. But there are psychologists, philosophers, pedagogues who know well what had been and who are involved in the active effort over the course of 30, 40 years um, to, to recover and to reconstitute. Um, so it's, a, it's an interesting um, dynamic, I would say, which um, of figures who are setting the tone, mentoring younger scholars, encouraging perhaps in small ways, uh, returns to international scholarship, um, and in a sense as well to the recovery or perhaps reframing of Spain's pedagogical heritage. So thank you so much, uh, Anna, for coming on the program. I know this has been very interesting for me to think about um, this question of children in, their, in the early 20th century that perhaps people haven't thought about much before. And especially thank you for reading these poems, which I think were um, a lot of fun and, and something we can learn a lot from as well. Thank you so much for having me, Foster. It was great to uh, share this with you. and. Uh, I love what you're doing with this podcast. So thank you so much for uh, the invitation. Thank you for listening to this episode of Historias. For additional information about our guest and a list of suggested readings, please visit our website at historiaspodcast.org. Also be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play and to follow us on Facebook or Twitter so that you can be notified of new episodes. Mm-hmm.